0: What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate. And look, you know what we're doing, right? Every single week, we're having real talk in the corporate world. And what does that mean? That means we're having authentic conversations that what center and do what else amplify who? Black and who else? Brown people. I keep on doing this weird call and response thing. I guess I'm just really excited. Um, but the point is, we're having these conversations and we typically have them with movers and shakers and that could be executives to entrepreneurs to social capital investors to activists to uh elected officials to public servants authors you know like we're, we're talking to everybody typically these people are black and brown but every now and then we'll have some white or white presenting uh folks on the podcast as well um and we're really passionate about that our goal is that um if you are a black or brown person or one of the only's in your your workplace that you listen to this and you feel affirmed and heard And if you're not one of those people, that you take this opportunity—a rare opportunity—to really hear some frank conversations about and from the perspectives of black and brown people about being black and brown at work, and you can use that information to be a better ally. See what I'm saying? So it helps everybody. And so, um, you know, like I said, every week we have an incredible guest, right? So let me just let me just pat our own collective back a little bit. We've had some incredible guests though, and you know, today is no different. Okay, we have Aubrey Blanche. Aubrey Blanche is the math path. That's a math nerd and an empath, which is wild because it's like it's like the dark side and the light side of the force coming together. She's like a gray Jedi. Anyway, uh, director of Equitable Design and at Culture amp and a startup investor and advisor. Through all of her work, she seeks to question, reimagine, and redesign systems. And y'all know we're gonna double click on that in a minute. And practices that surround us to ensure that all people can access equitable opportunities and build a better world. Her work is undergirded. I like that word, undergirded. Undergirded. Just say that to y'all, cells, y'all. Undergirded. Uh, undergirded by her training in social scientific methods and grounded in the fundamental dignity and value of every person. Aubrey, welcome to the show. How are you doing?
1: Hey, thank you so much for having me. I feel like genuinely blown away at the idea that I get to join you and also your intro <laughs> made me want to cry. I just love, I love what you're doing. I love the, the mission and the vision. Um, and undergirded is such a fun word.
0: It's so great, right? There are certain words that are just really nice to say. Undergirded, plethora.
1: Right, I mean, I'm a deeply overeducated human being, and so I'm like, just occasionally you get to use those silly seventeen dollars words that you don't have to. Don't have to, but, use.
0: right? Yeah. you know, um, Erica Badu once said the um, the famous um, psalmist. Uh, she said, "What good do your words do if they don't understand you?" But that's for another another conversation, another day. Look, I read your bio, or rather, let me be honest. I took out like the first. You know, twenty percent of your bio for the sake of this conversation. But what does all of that really mean? Like, what do you actually do?
1: Yeah, what do I do? Um, I feel like the what I try to do is like crush white supremacy with capitalism, which is confusing conceptually. It is, um, but but really, I think what I try to do is is harness the the privilege that I have, and I guess the oppression that I've experienced mm-hmm. as this very literal. Human, and we can talk about what that means. I right. um, try to use the privilege that I that I've had, and try to figure out how to scale those out. Yes. Like that's the simplest thing in my soul that I'm trying to do. And right now, I happen to do that within the context of technology and investing and finance. Mm-hmm. What I'm really interested in is learning the rules of systems, so that we can begin to evolve those systems, so that they begin breaking themselves down mm-hmm. where they are harming people.
0: I like that. I like that a lot. There's a lot of nuance in what you just said. So like, that's why I'm really excited to like get into this. In fact, yeah. with, with that being said, like, let's talk a little bit about like this moment where we are. Right. And before we do that, like, let's, let's like zoom in on like our interaction about you being on this platform. Right.
1: So for folks on the podcast, basically what happened is Zach was awesome and reached out to have me on. And, and my first sort of response was, hey, want to be clear that I'm white passing, want to make sure that we have sort of BIPOC folks in front of my voice. I'm really happy to speak sort of to my people, but I also want to be respectful of not taking up more space than I need to. And that for me is because it's really important to me just on a basic ethical level, like we have this moment, it's always been important to listen to those voices. Um, and I've tried to create that space, but it's especially important now because so many people are listening. Um, and so I think I'm trying to figure out where my role is in this moment as, um, you know, a woman of color, but someone who does have white privilege in so many settings. And then on top of that, I'm transracially adopted. So there's like even more nuance inside of that um, sort of like, yeah, that's it's what, a lot.
0: That is a <laughs> lot. That is a lot. So, okay. So when you say transracially adopted, like your parents are what ethnicity
1: are your parents? Uh, yeah, so I'm um, I'm mixed, and I'm Mexican-American. And as of about a couple of weeks ago, I found out that the other part is Irish. Fun fact, adoption is weird and keeps coming back right. to you. Right. Um, so my, my adoptive mother is second-gen American on both sides, Euro-American. And then my adoptive father is actually Euro-American and indigenous. So he's oh, wow. Choctaw. Um, and has been uh, an indigenous legal activist, um, in addition to being sort of corporate counsel. But my dad, what's interesting is that despite the fact that I grew up sort of in the indigenous community and and things like that, is my dad is also white passing. Mm -hmm. So my whole adoptive family looked hella white, but we actually had a really complex sort of racial identity within our family.
0: I mean, so I think, and I think it's important, right? Like, I mean, we're going to get there in a minute, but. So you operate in this space, like I know. I know when I first saw your picture, and right, I was like, I don't, "Do you watch Steven Universe?"
1: Uh, I don't.
0: But. Okay, okay. So you should check out Steven Universe because, like, you give me strong Rose Quartz vibes, and you'll—it's a—it's a compliment. Like you should look at Rose Quartz; okay. she's she's great. But you look like a like you kind of look like a star. Like you look like a, you know, like you're not, You know, you're at the tech You do the talks, and you do all these things. And so, like, outside looking in, it's like I think you sit in this space that's really it's interesting. So I'm not going to profile you because I've listened to what you actually have to say, but you sit in this space. That's like, you speak about diversity, equity, inclusion, you are white passing. Like your experience and identity is much more complex than that, but you sit in this very influential space. And it's like, kind of, I, what I'm curious about is like considering the space that you've inhabited historically around this work. And when you think about this moment, like it's kind of like a watershed moment, right? Like people are really starting to call, d institutions to account, uh, particularly white women in these spaces and, and groups. I'm curious, like, is there anything right now that you're more sensitive to? You kind of talked about a little bit about you've been thinking mm-hmm. about it more like where are you at just emotionally and mentally around this work right now?
1: Yeah, so I think like the Overton window of what we can talk about to white people has shifted. And mm-hmm. so what I mean by that is my personal philosophy is that I'm someone who I was born um, in a situation that was let's just say much rougher than the one I got adopted into. Mm -hmm. And something I've always carried with me is like the phrase that I use to describe it is little girls born like me do not sit in rooms and talk to billionaires.
0: Mm.
1: Just a fact. Statistically there's no reason that I should be in the place in the world that I am. Right. And so what I think about is I've moved through these very white supremacist um, systems, you know, right? Like I got to survive because I need more SPF than some people. Sure. And I've learned how those systems work. But the problem is I always felt really alienated by them because they didn't align with my sense of self. Because for a lot of complicated reasons, I really have been socialized and racialized as a Latina mm-hmm. um, because of social context I grew up in and I didn't actually understand whiteness until I went to college and people stopped being racist to me and I was like, wow, I didn't know that was optional.
0: Um, (laughs) Yeah.
1: Truly. And it sounds really silly to someone I think, but like just given the specific circumstances of my life that happened. And so throughout my twenties, as I sort of grew in my consciousness on this, I kind of said, there are particular spaces I can speak to that people who are darker than me can't. And I own and acknowledge that that is a relic and a fact of a white supremacist system, but it's also still true. And so what I try to do, and I will admit imperfectly, which is why I think we need you know, people to keep us accountable to this integrity, is I try to talk to people who are going to listen to me more, or I try to say things to shift the Overton window so that when darker people of color say them, they receive less abuse. So, Mm. I recognize when I say something first, even if, and I say first, meaning in the space, not that it's my magical idea, that I'm less likely to just get on for it because I look like Karen. Right, right, right. (laughs) And so, I think about it like, can I be the linebacker for black women? Can I normalize that idea so that we can make that space less hostile? So, then I can go, now listen to who you should listen to and let me bring that voice into the room. So, I think... That is my dual responsibility. And now because suddenly we're seeing communities actually capable of listening to BIPOC folks without immediately abusing, I'm much more careful about where I step back because I think I have less internal intuition about where the correct action is. And so I'm trying to be more deferential. So that's where I am. But I wouldn't say that I know what I'm doing. I'm figuring it out.
0: No, I mean well, that's like a really honest answer. first of all, thank you for and like for the context and background. I think your premise, which you started off with in terms of your purpose, is different than most folks. Like if you ask most people their purpose, like they're not going to say what their real purpose is. Because like most folks I'm painting with a wide brush, but I mean mm-hmm. what I'm about to say. Most folks goal is to, by some degree, be white men. Right? So like their goal is to get as much power as they can. So like your whole framing of like, I'm going to block for this other person so that they can have a platform to actually speak. I'm going to leverage my access and my power and my privilege to then create space for darker skin, Latinx, for black women, for like for other people who are um, societally historically in, in, in different ways, again, just on their face, no pun intended, like more um, are harmed in different differently than I am. Like that's just not the typical goal. Right. And so, you know, we've talked a little bit about the nuances of, of your identity and your background. Um, and that's, it's incredible. I'd like to talk more about the concept of being white presenting while also at the same time being a person of color. Right. My challenge Aubrey, right now is that like that person of color term is starting to become like this junk drawer thing where like everybody's a person of color, but like we don't really specify your name identity um, in this work even now. So like, you know, that's why with Living Corporate, we don't say we centered marginalized experiences of people of color at work. We say black and brown because we really want to be explicit with like who we're talking about. Um, you know, you brought up the being white presenting. I just like to hear more about like the nuances of from your perspective, Latinx identity and how you present versus culture and ethnicity. And let's also add like the dynamic of how people perceive you.
1: Absolutely. So I think it's, it's something that I think about a lot and I want to bring in another piece of my identity. That's been really helpful for me yeah. in figuring this stuff out, which is I'm also a queer person, but I'm yeah. like bisexual or pansexual or I don't know, whatever, something that's definitely not definitely gay and not definitely straight. That's and sure. I don't really got it much harder than that, but yeah. um, I have a lot of things that are like queer signifiers in terms of my identity, but like could also just be confused for kind of all straight people. Huh. Um, so, I, again, most of my identities are, like, invisible and liminal. And the way that I think about it is that, you know, we talk about that identity construction is a process. And so I can't change that, like, I didn't grow up in a Latin family, for example. And I would never lie about it. when people, but something uh, that was really interesting to me, um, it was a friend who's, who's indigenous, he's Maori. Um, who gave me a framework for thinking about this because I've struggled with my legitimacy as part of, like, the Latinx community or how do I relate to this label, people of color. I have a complicated set of feelings with that language but think it can be useful in terms of identifying a collective. And for me, it was really about who I am and my identity is actually not something that can be challenged. The fact is, right, like, my lineage comes from people in Mexico but also, I can acknowledge that I have both colonizer and colonized in my DNA, and that is mm-hmm. is something to deal with. Um, but the thing that a friend to me said that gave me the most legitimacy that my identity is real um, is he said, "I can't accept that the fact that we are pale means we are no longer from our ancestors. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they would have been right that they could have f- the indigeneity out of us." Right. right. And like is probably pretty harsh but but for me I was like yeah you're right there's an energy there's a spirit there's a culture now I because for my own well-being I did need to be put in a different family than the one I originally was born into mm-hmm. um, I've had to connect with and sort of become a part of my culture as an adult so I've had a little bit of a different experience because of, of what was important for me and so I think there's that but I think to pretend like my experience in terms of economics, in terms of the way that I have experienced racism and racialization are meaningfully different than most or a big portion of the Latinx community. And I think for me, that tells me what my role should be. So I'm grateful for the folks who like welcome me into the community and don't do the, like, you're not legitimate. Cause you have a different story, right. a story that also understand, um, Like, here's a fun fact to think. uh, My adoptive mother is the most incredible person I've ever met. Absolutely saved my life. And also we know that women of the dominant race, you know, bringing children from the the colonized race into their family is a feature of genocide. Like, (laughs) both those things are true. true. And so for me, I say, because I have this almost armor in the systems we live in, my role is to listen to my community and advocate into the majority for it, because I can be a translator, because I can move between. And so rather than seeing my ability to play with those systems of oppression as questions about my legitimacy, I relate to them as in, they give me a special role for my activism in the same way that I think each of us has a special role in the way that we bring our activism to life in line with our purpose and our unique privileges and oppressions. So, yeah, that's like that was really deep for you. But but that's my honest answer. And I think I try to hold the humility that like I've definitely up, right? I've definitely right. done things wrong. But right. I try to st- myself with people who tell me that when it's happening so I can at least try to minimize the way that, you know, my white fragility or my internalized racism or any other isms are impacting the people around me.
0: I mean, you just now here, just casually just drop wow wow bobs
1: try well you're
0: doing you're you're doing a phenomenal job like you should you should continue on this path like stay here uh so let's talk a little bit about the culture summit um 2019 that you were a guest speaker you were a keynote speaker and you you talked about diversity fatigue in tech right and so like it's interesting We're we're gonna continue to like nail on this in the next few questions too but like i feel as if like so the majority has had to be aware or care about black people for, let's see here. Has it been like three months, two and a half months?
1: I'm going to be like I'm quite generous.
0: I, I, guess, I, I don't know. It's, it's been like a handful of months. Like it hasn't been that long. And like people are already talking about being tired. So, like, I'm curious about like, when you think about the concept of diversity fatigue um, with like white leaders. And, um, you know, especially as you think about it at an organizational level, like what have you seen work well to manage diversity fatigue?
1: Yeah, I think the thing about it, and this really relates to this idea I say a lot, which is like, and I, um, and what I don't actually mean is like, goal. <laughs> and I think it's, they're actually really related thing, which is that people are tired, like. I want to sit there and be like, how dare you get tired? But, like, I understand how the human nervous system works, so I have sure. to, like, deal with that as a real constraint. Right. But I feel like, diversity fatigue is partially happening because everybody's had the same 10 diversity talks for five years. Right. They, like, put some money into branding and putting a black face on their website and then threw their hands up and said, and why isn't racism done? And so... <laughs> <laughs> it that way you're like oh yeah that was never going to work in the first place and so i think the solution to diversity fatigue rather than us like yelling at people who are tired which is just going to make them turn off and i like hold in my heart the frustration that we have to do this right like (laughs) because people are tired they've done enough like but again philosophical versus practical radicalism there I think that it's this move to equitable design that actually I think fights diversity fatigue because what are people tired of? They're tired of being lectured at. They're tired of not doing. And so instead of saying, we care about D&I, my response is, if you don't have a budget and you don't have a time allocation, I don't care and you don't count. Um, Because I'm sorry, your caring didn't help anyone. Right. And. And that's what equitable design is, right? It's about saying what is my plan, what is my process, what is my data about what's broken, and what is my idea and my action about how to try to fix it. And when you go with that methodology, suddenly everybody gets a job. So maybe it's right. Maybe it's um, I'm speaking about culture amp in this exact moment. Yeah. Um, our programs right our black employees job right now is to attend the mental health program we're offering for them and to take care of themselves that is their job that is so healthy right like that is your job right now in our company anti-racism strategy our black campers your job is to take care of yourself we've made it clear we've brought in experts my job is to build the corporate strategy you know our ceo's job is to fully fund the plan um and so this equitable design idea gives everyone a job. And it's hard to get fatigued with something when you've given people like little win breadcrumbs along the way. So mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, um, and if folks want to, they can check out Culture Amps anti-racism plan online. Um, mm-hmm. So we actually, we didn't just publish the commitment. We published the operating plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of this sort of six-month cycle, we'll provide an update for folks because accountability matters. Um, but, mm-hmm. but right? It's real cultureampcom slash anti-racism. If you want to check it out, I'm about to pull but, it up. Yeah, on. right. It's, I mean, the pillars are easy, which is support and care, um, accountability, education, and then access. And so for me, that's what equitable design is. It's everyone taking a look at the actions that they're already taking in their day and going, how can I design this to create a more equitable impact? So maybe you're giving a career coaching conversation to that friend of a friend's kid, why don't you ask that student to find an underrepresented classmate who you're also going to give a career coaching conversation to? I'm telling you, I did it last month. You know, when you read a book written by a black woman, why don't you make sure that you go online and write a review for it? Because then the algorithm knows that people engage with that book, right? Like, it's not about always, although certainly if you want to donate to the Movement for Black Lives or everything, I vehemently support you. I think people mistake... That, like, activism, that anti-racism, that DNI is something separate from what they're already doing as opposed to a slight edit of the things they're doing. Agreed. Agreed. And that's how you overcome fatigue. And, like, I'm totally fine. If you as an ally, like, you just did that coaching conversation with someone who would not have had access to an executive before, like, I'm sure you pat yourself on the back for that. Go (laughs) ahead. (laughs) Like, I know ally cookies and whatever, but if you want to, like, self-high-five or you want to tell, like, another one of your friends who isn't marginalized from that group, like, I did a good thing and you want to high-five from, like, another white person, fine. Right. Cool. If you motivate it and it gets you to do the next 10 things over the next 10 and 100 years, then I'm fully supportive of that. So I guess that's where it is. It's like we fight diversity fatigue by doing things consistently that actually work.
0: I feel like and you kind of talked about this. I feel like a large part of this work is massaging white discomfort or trying to figure out ways to like Jedi mind trick white folks into caring about black and brown people. And like I hear what you're doing at Culture Amp. The link will be in the show notes because I just looked at it and it's fire. So it is worth I And I also shared it with a couple of mentors, but I'd like to get your reaction to what I just said. And like, if you agree with that, then like, is that tenable in today's climate?
1: Such a good question. My answer, I was, I was a little quiet because I was like, is it like sixty percent or like eighty percent of the work? Um, <laughs> right? Because no strategy and communications. No, I think it absolutely is, and it's the reason that like I choose to do this work because I think something people don't talk about enough, and I talk about in some in some communities that I'm I'm building, is like us white passing folks are the tactical weapons to solve this particular problem. Right. Like I don't just like code switch. Although I do that too. I literally identity switch at work minute by minute. Mm. Because I have the unique ability to like feel both sides of the coin because I've lived both sides of them. And so that's actually a lot of the reason that I do the work I do is because I know how much of this is like managing white discomfort and frankly, my face partially manages white discomfort to have discussions about racism and white supremacy. Right. And I think it's true. Now your second question is really important. Is it tenable or sustainable? Um, I have a complex answer to that. So philosophically my answer to you is no. My deeply practical science lady answer is it's not an avoidable problem in the short term. So This is a weird theory I'm going to give you. and has to do with drug addiction, but I think it's relevant for anti-racism work. So here's a theory I've never spoken online before. Mm. So there's something really fascinating about drugs and how they work on the brain, which is that the dosage and the frequency that they hit the brain completely changes the brain's response to it. Mm. So like small amounts over time create resistance Large amounts all at once tend to cause addiction. I'm I'm vastly oversimplifying, but but just work with. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: So I'll say people who experience racism—not people of color, but people who experience racism—we basically have been given doses of racial stress throughout our lives. So we now like have resilience to it. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's ideal. I'm just saying it's sort of a descriptive fact of the
0: world. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. People. We basically have to dose them with enough racial stress in the right ratios at the right time to get them to be able to have these conversations. Because what the research is telling us is that white fragility is actually like people's brains perceiving they're in danger when they're in absolutely no danger whatsoever. <laughs> but that's neuroscience. So philosophically, I'm like, yeah, it's not sustainable. But we have to think about ways to give people experience with racial stress white people specifically, so that they're resilient and can have the conversations. And I think that's the process that's happening right now in a broader cultural sense, is that white people, I mean, have you seen the New York Times bestseller list? Right. Um, it looks like my bookshelf, but right. <laughs> I have like, a line yeah. on one of my shelves called What White America's Reading. Right. But so what I'm saying is that I think we're in the moment where white people are being dosed with racial stress in a way that they never have been. And so I am saying that like, we're still probably going to have another, I, I don't know, I don't want to put a timeline on it. Um, that's a terrible statistician thing to do. But I do think it will change because more white people are educating themselves and even like white people that I are in my family that I've like never seen talk about racial justice before are like texting me and asking me questions and so I'm really hopeful like I'm not overly hopeful I know how you know the 17 million different ways this could go sideways but like I have to hold on to that hope because that's what motivates me to push so hard right now and so I think that there's a real chance that there's enough white people who are like oh i get some more rules now and i at least know to like shut up and listen that we could build a coalition that's big enough to actually create fundamental structural change like i have to believe that's true because that's what i spend all of my time pushing for
0: right i mean so you know i struggle with the ways that this space plays with language like i i don't know you like just to a certain extent like Aubrey, like the language itself becomes like it itself becomes like this test, um, and like this becomes very classist, and like it it becomes like really exclusionary because like we're talking in way in like these very like esoteric terms that like kind of mean whatever, I right? And we write like halt long medium posts about this versus that, but at that same time, a lot of folks are still using equity and equality interchangeably. I do th- so like like we just like we just we really don't understand. Like when I say we, I mean like just the common person, like not even the DNI expert, but just like the common person. I do think a word though, when we talk about this space and we talk about achieving belonging <laughs> at work mm-hmm. is like redistributing organizational power. Like I don't often hear the word power like really uh, employed in conversations, particularly around um, black engagement, brown people. I don't hear that word. Like, have you thought about, that is that significant to you at all
1: absolutely i think i want to like add another word in because i i agree with you right getting really esoteric about language it excludes people who haven't like had those discussions about those specific subtle differences right um i talk about equity i actually don't really use the word equality i don't think about equality that I, much i don't
0: either but people be thought but people, I've, I've seen it i've seen it in like some like Like, big brands have used the word equality. I'm like, why are
1: we... And I think, um, like, I'll I'll just give my particular view, and I want to do this without, like, throwing shade, but for me, I tend to see people use equality when they're less familiar with a lot of the, like, deep social justice theory because they're Mm. articulating the outcome. Yeah. And, like, equality is the outcome of the process of equity. Right. And the process of equity, by literal definition is about redistributing power and opportunity at least in the way that i perceive it i think the other term we have to talk about um, or that i think about a lot and i can't believe i work at a place where i have like advanced deep conversations with executives about this Mm. is the concept of organizational justice yeah yeah so i think justice is helpful because there's um i just learned uh, a new type of justice which is like my favorite fact ever when it's Mm. like there's a for this but thinking about like what does procedural justice look like right equitable design creates processes that create procedural justice mm. i think about testimonial justice so how do i make sure that people's stories are have the space to be told in the ways that they need to to respect human dignity and opportunity um mm. and so i think redistributing you know, organizational power is at the core of what i do so really what I'm doing all day, whether I'm writing a corporate strategy, whether I'm like thinking about what hat I need to wear in a particular conversation, yeah. is I'm doing a power analysis of the situation. Um, like a good example of this, and I'm going to put this out there, when I think about power and systemic power, right, like one of the most abusive things that exists that most d leaders aren't even talking about is forced arbitration agreements. Mm. You have just taken right? away um, or also class action rights. So by including that in your employment contract to all of the CEOs and leaders listening, what you are saying is you in your power. You have absolutely no recourse that is fair if we mess up and harm you. And I truly believe that that's true yeah. because what you're doing, you're stripping that individual of the way that they might balance their power against the power of a corporation with backers. And that's even ignoring the racial power dynamics or the ableist power dynamics there. Right. So I think that we would be so much better served if we talked about power. But then the other important thing I want to bring in, and I realize it's your thing, but I'm going to ask you a question, yeah. which is I don't think that people understand the difference between power with and power over. Hmm. And I agree. It, it I agree. relates to what you earlier, where I almost laughed, not at you, but you said, like, you're giving up power. And I almost laughed because I don't think by creating space for people, I'm giving up power because mm. my definition of power is power with. So I believe that when I move out of a particular space, I am gaining power because the collective is gaining power. And I'm a part of that collective.
0: But see, like in that though, there's like this, um, I don't know, like like you have to have like, a, like a, a different mindset and premise that you're operating from to even see that as power though, right? Because like most people Ooh. just don't see, it's, it's a zero sum game. There's also like a very capitalistic mindset to it too. So like- if you heavily prescribe to like uh, historically oppressive systems and you're not necessarily like a very, like you don't think in communal wet terms or frames, <laughs> then you're not going to see it that way. I agree with you though, that like the idea of power with the power over is um, and it's funny cause I didn't, I didn't know that's what you were going to say. I didn't I mean, I didn't know that's what that, what like that meant in that, in that context, I thought you meant like power with being like, um, I don't know. I just, I interpreted it differently. Because I think about mm-hmm. the fact that a lot of people don't consider the fact that like even if they are not in an organizational, if, even if they're not high in an organization, they still have power by way of their whiteness. And like that's not a theoretical mm-hmm. power. Like it's a real power because like as an example. So let's say let's pretend. So you and I work at Culture Amp and we have we are part of the same team. We have the same job. In fact, I may be senior to you in the organization. Like the, the reality is like if you wanted to, you could just share a couple of points of feedback to like other people around me. And I could be fired, right? Not at Coltrane, but you know what I mean? Like you have the societal, you have, you have yep. some, right. You have advantages to where if you say, you know what? Like, I just don't think Zach is really cutting it. Or I don't really think Zach is that bright or I don't think whatever, or Zach makes me feel uncomfortable or whatever the case is. Right. And so what was a struggle for me is when we talk about power, yes, we're talking about like the white executives or just executives period, like the people who are in positions of like organizational authority But also the people who are not in a position of organizational authority who still can harm black and brown people who should on paper be protected even by the very pessimistic and like harmful rules that that organization has created for its own leadership. Like they still don't really even participate or benefit from those protections because of the color of their skin or because of um, a disability or whatever the case may be. You know what I mean?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely, and I think that's actually the thing that we don't um, we don't teach people is I mean I think it's like American culture in general is very oppressive. Like a lot of our cultural values are about control, um, and then but we don't actually have a dialogue about it. And so I mean those of us on, on on the bottom end of the distribution in any context tend to talk about it, but the people at the top of the distributions don't talk about it. And so yeah, I think that people. Also, because we're in this sort of capitalistic society I say that like I'm like capitalism is like traffic I don't like it but I have to be in it um, <laughs> I got that from Nicole Sanchez I want to give her a shout, Yo, out.
0: shout out to Nicole Sanchez we just spoke today she's gonna to be on the show a little bit later that's dope
1: oh, she's brilliant I can only say like she is someone who has guided me and taught me and I appreciate her wisdom and I don't even have, I don't have time uh, to describe uh, how much I think she's great but <laughs> Um, you know, I think, I think that that, that is it is that people don't understand power. And also I think there's this weird game in, I think it's everywhere, but like American culture, like lies about it, where the mm. thing is people. Actually, like crave power and status, but they have to lie about wanting it. And it comes from like our whole lie about like classes don't exist in America, even though they obviously do. <laughs> uh, yeah. right? No, we're not a class system. Yeah, we are. Yes, we are. And what? I've been on every rung of it. Trust me, I know. Right. Uh, uh, at different points in my life.
0: Right, right. I mean, you know, let's talk a little bit about. I want to go you know what now nah, let's let's keep going so part of your bio i read included the concept of reimagining systems right so like i've had on a few guests and many of them believe this is a watershed moment for you know quote unquote dni hr culture like that whole space um like do you think there's any radical reimagining that needs to happen today or that really should have happened a while ago but is certainly like further mobilized by this moment
1: Absolutely. I mean, the thing is, um, like the phrase, it's been repeated to me like every week, like never waste a good crisis. But what I mean is don't waste the attention on these problems, because attention is what can get you the solutions. And so yeah, do I think it's a watershed? Gosh, I hope so. Like, I hope that companies stop doing unconscious bias training and we have honest conversations about the fact that it was conscious design decisions in organizations that create intentional discrimination and exclusion. I've been saying that to everyone with a C-level title I can talk to. Um, you're like, unconscious bias. I'm like, it was never unconscious bias. You were just too fragile to hear it. It was yeah. conscious failures of leadership.
0: Listen, I'll never forget one time. This was, is this was some years ago I was talking to a leader about and I literally it was on my way out because I was I left and I made a risk log as I was leaving. I was like, look, you just, these are just things you need to know about the project that we was on and about like people on your team. And here are things that would help you if you just consider the risks. Got on the phone. Um, I'd already resigned. So like it was like my last week. Right. So then we're talking and she's like one of the risks I put on there was I literally I made it so soft. I said potential unconscious bias and her response was I've never had a situation where I've been unconsciously biased and I said well by the very nature of the concept you wouldn't know if you've been unconsciously biased because it's unconscious so it's wild when when you think about like just the, the multiple levels of grace and outs that white people provide themselves through diversity and inclusion work like it's it's just not to me about it's not about justice it's not about equity it's not about any of really it's not about black and brown people at all it's just about like shoring up power and control while kind of like you know protecting yourselves from litigious risk right like but it's not real
1: but you know what zach you just said the word risk and i want to like one yes a plus a thousand you and i want to talk about the way that risk can be reimagined mm, um yes but i have you on this line and it's the thing that i've been saying um to lawyers to executives not just at culture amp like i said literally to anyone who will listen because yeah. i figure like i have my like hamilton my shot energy about yes, this like yes. how can we get in this moment yes. which is that we can decide that risk means the company losing business because we have to fire an executive who's an abusive Like, violations of human dignity are a risk that we cannot bear, and we will simply choose when we identify abusers to move them out of our organizations. Like, that's a choice that people can make about the definition of risk. And frankly, even if you're talking in capitalistic terms, if you think about how much companies spend on, like, external legal firms when they get sued for discrimination, it is so much cheaper to fire an executive and hire a new one. Right, (laughs) that right because we know there's a lot of but or anyone in the organization right right? if they're not an executive they're even less financially you know sort of creating return for the business so again i go back to this idea of reimagining let's take the words and the concepts and just ask the basic question do we have to do it this way? Is there a better way? A company could say, we value people being treated well, because we know that treating you well equals better cognition, which equals more innovation, which in this economy, in our business, equals more dollars in revenue. We can choose to act as if that is true, and that choice and that action is what builds the world in which it is true. So... I'm saying this, like, I live in a in an industry where everyone's like, we're changing the world. I'm like, you're shooting a rocket into space. Someone did that already. Not to diminish that it's an incredible feat of engineering to get a rocket into space. It's incredible. Right. But it's actually less incredible than being like, maybe we should treat our employees like full humans who are deserving of dignity. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, that just doesn't seem like that bananas to me.
0: Well, it, it doesn't, though, because you're rejecting white supremacy and patriarchy, like, full stop.
1: Because it's lame and it diminishes. <laughs> like, cool. I could have like what a Lamborghini because I look white. Like my soul is not better off. Other human beings aren't better off. Nah, Sorry, I'm going. Off. I, I agree. But like white <laughs> like, supremacy diminishes everyone, even those of us who benefit from it. Obviously, those who benefit should do more work. Full stop.
0: Right, right. But no, I mean, I feel you. I mean, I also think it's whack, but uh, but that's the reason. So. What about this time right now scares you? Aubrey, math path, white presenting woman, complex background. Like, is there anything right now that feels like you feel more on the like more in the spotlight or more pressured?
1: The thing that I'm like deeply afraid of in this moment to be specific is I know what the United States does um, to people who don't identify as white in history, and I'm afraid that white America won't take the signals that we're deep down the road to genocide seriously enough until we all start dying in higher numbers. Like, that is actually what I'm afraid of, is that white people don't think it's urgent enough to burn down over, because the fact is, like, there are children in cages, we have, you know, this has been happening forever, we have police forces gunning down innocent civilians of all colors. Right. Although we know that some communities experience that disproportionately. So what scares me? People wanting to lull themselves into a sense of security because they want the world to be better than it is.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's scary. I think about like where we are right now and like just the death count because of COVID-19. And I mm-hmm. think about, and they also think I still, I think, I think the fact that like defund the police is still like becoming such a, people are still pushing back. the I'm like, look, I say, y'all, the, the data's right here. Like when they're not solving crime, like they're bleeding communities dry because of the budgets are way too high. We are underserved in these other service areas. And yet that's still like a radical, crazy idea. Like it's still, it's still seen as like a a bizarre idea. We're still pushing back against like the idea of reparations. Folks are still sending kids to school right now in the middle of a pandemic. Like you said, kids in cage. I mean, you're right. It's, it's scary because it's just like, I don't know. Like just the, the, like there's a certain level of awareness. That's been really cool to see kind of weird to be frank as a black person it's kind of strange but at the same time i'm looking at everything and i'm just like yo this is you know (laughs) just talking about the pandemic alone like we haven't even hit the second wave and so it's just like what are we doing so i i I hear you that's a fear of mine too
1: that was the honest answer it wasn't it wasn't an upper but but i think it's hard though like all of these things are under people's control. Yeah. To pay attention, to yeah. advocate, to take action, and that's what I always want to link it to. Is like, if that's not the world you want to see, refuse to live in. It.
0: Right, right, no, one hundred percent. Okay, so let's let's wrap it up on this one. Um, if yeah. you had to give three things executive leaders should be keeping in mind when it comes to engaging and retaining black talent specifically, and in general, more socially conscious workforce, you think about Gen Z. Um, like, what would those three things be?
1: Number one, you need to go to therapy to deal with your own self-esteem, control, and power issues. They will absolutely come out in the workplace. Number two, you must educate yourself, and the Google machine is a beautiful resource. And, <laughs> it's, number- and it's free. <laughs> oh, it's free. There are so many people from Gen Z and the black community that have put their thoughts and life experiences online. You do not have to go bother someone who works with you. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: And number three, what you value is not what they value and they are coming to power. You need to learn how to gracefully evolve with the world. Those would be my most heartfelt pieces of advice uh, to make what is an inevitable transition something that you can participate in and bring into the world as opposed to something you can fight and that will be painful. That's
0: something that just kind of happens to you because it ha- it's going to happen,
1: right? It, I mean, like it's- demography is destiny. Like, we know where this is going. And so you can either be a part of that change and come into that new world or you can kick and scream but it's coming and it can either be fun or not fun and that's really up to you I,
0: I mean first of all this has been fire so like we haven't so side note y'all we haven't done sound effects in a while just because stuff has been so heavy but don't like don't play with me like i still have sound effects on the living corporate podcast sound man gonna put them in right here <coughs> and a fleck bomb put that in here too right here sound man. there you go okay so this has been incredible you know what I'm calling it right here Aubrey Blanche, you are a friend of the show. Okay. Culture Thank
1: Amp you so much. Culture Amp,
0: y'all, y'all are welcome here anytime. This is not an ad. Culture Amp, what's I up? Know
1: that. I really <laughs> do know. for creating this space. <laughs> I'm really grateful um, for this space to get to unpack these things, I guess my hope is is other folks who have some some life stories similar to mine get some wisdom and inspiration out of it, so that they can do something that makes the world more incredible. So, thank you so much for creating this space. I'm really grateful.
0: Look, I mean, I appreciate you. This is great. Um, and y'all, this has been Zach with the Living Corporate Podcast. Y'all know what we do, right? Like we have these conversations every single Tuesday, and then you know, on Thursdays we got Tristan's tips, and on fr- on Saturdays, not on Fridays, on Saturdays we have. C- it to be with C winiger so we have like a whole network really you know what i'm saying on one platform you know you just have to check in when you check in okay uh, but look that's been us you uh, check us out we're all over beyonce's internet um you just type in living corporate okay we'll pop up and um, i'm not gonna go through all the domains you know we got all of them except for LivingCorporate.com. we have all the other ones okay so just type us in you'll see us over there until next time this has been zach you've been listening to aubrey blanche Leader, Mover, Shaker. Till next time, y'all. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for musical elevation. Post production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion?